Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Welcome to the episode, today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. As you heard, in the intro, this is the podcast where we talk about books that were made into movies, and we have opinions about them, and sometimes we use barnyard language, and there's going to be spoilers, and I'm super excited to do this episode today. I just want to put in a quick warning. Watch the movie if you haven't, because the spoilers are going to be really spoily, and the movie's so much more entertaining if you don't know what's going to happen. As we always say, we're going to give recaps, we're going to have spoilers, definitely affects your enjoyment of the movie if you know what's going to happen i feel like if you read the book though you'll totally know what's going to happen in the movie because they don't change the ending that dramatically but the ending is worth being excited about so if this is on your to be read and to be watched pile i encourage you to do that and yeah and then come back because we'll still be here these episodes live on and on forever and hey then technically i think that uh, itunes might count you as listening twice so wouldn't that be fun (laughs) No, just kidding. Anyways, so we're going to talk about The Dressmaker, but before we do a couple quick announcements, as you know, we have a Patreon and our patrons are awesome and they get access to our episodes early and they get some cool bonus stuff. You can find out more about that at patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. You can also read about it on our website, kmmamedia.com. Just click on the pages and popcorn podcast link at the top of the page where you can get more information about how to support us. Again, Patreon is a great way. Rating and reviewing us on whatever pod platform you listen to is another great way. Telling your friends, liking and sharing us on Facebook is another great way. Oh, and we do have a shop. So feel free to buy stuff at the shop. And coming soon, we will have, actually it might be up before this episode goes out, We'll see. We will have the Buy Me a Cup of Coffee, which is a Patreon type thing. It's a little weird. Uh, I'm going to post about it and explain about it, but it's kind of a cool, interesting, fun way to support the podcast. You can also find us on Goodreads and you can find me on Clubhouse. So that's exciting and fun. And if you really want to hang out with Jennifer and I for like an hour, once a month, talk about books and talk about movies and talk about podcasts and talk about episodes and talk about politics, except we might mute you because no, just kidding. We'll talk to you. We might not agree with you, but we'll talk to you. We are going to do a pop-in event on the last Mondays of the month via Zoom. So check out all of our social media places and get more information about that. That would be, it'll be super fun. We can talk about stuff, stuff and stuff and get your feedback. So those are all my announcements. Oh, sorry. One last thing. You can email us at pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com. What time will our pop-ins be? Our pop-in events. Our pop-in events will be at seven o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And we'll go for about an hour-ish. So that, yes. And more information again and the Zoom link and all of that kind of stuff will be sent out later. So check check it out. Check out. Oh, we're on Instagram. 
<laughs> so many places now. <laughs> Still really resistant to Twitter, honestly, because it's just, it doesn't work well with my brain. There's just too many things, but I'm trying. But yes, we are also on Instagram. And I promise we will never have a Pinterest page. Okay, so <laughs> moving quite along, let's talk about the dressmaker. The Dressmaker is considered by some to be a gothic novel, and yes, I have an opinion about that. It was written by the Australian author Rosalie Ham. It is Ham's debut novel. It was first published in January 2000. The movie came out years later, and we'll talk about the movie in a minute, but first, here is my book recap. In the 1950s, Myrtle, aka Tilly Dunnage, returns to her hometown of Dungator, an Australian country town, to take care of her ill mother, Molly. She is not welcomed home. Everyone hates her. Everyone whispers behind her back. Her mother is Mad Molly, a loose woman who'd had Tilly out of wedlock, and Tilly was constantly tormented by other kids as a child. Now, they still torment her. It is a small town, and everyone knows everything or thinks they do about everyone else. But a lot of people are actually bastards, and not in the illegitimate birth sort of way like Tilly was. No, no. There's the town councilman who drugs and assaults his wife every night. His wife is mentally ill because their son died 20 years ago. Then there's the married woman sneaking off with someone who's not her husband. And then there's all sorts of petty infighting and cliquish behavior. The town is pretty much only united in three areas. They hate Tilly. They love football which is, by the way, the American football, not soccer. And they love Teddy, their star football player, despite the fact they don't like his very poor family. They see that his family is full of lots of sisters and brothers, and everybody treats them like white trash. Teddy, though, is nice to Tilly. She rebuffs him because she's scared, but he eventually wins her over. Another champion for Tilly is the police sergeant, Frat, who has a secret of his own involving wearing women's clothing in secret, in secret, secret, secret. These two men befriend her and help her deal with her mother, Molly, who's cantankerous and cruel and sick and, well, crotchety to the extreme. A few more important characters. And be careful here, there are a lot of characters. I will not go through all of them, but here are a few important ones. There is William Beaumont, who has returned to town recently, and his new wife, who is Trudy. He married her over the concerns of his prissy mother, who acts like they are God's gift and high class, but actually they have very little money. This marriage was brought about by the necessity for William to pay down his family's bill at the town's general shop. Oh, look, the couple that runs the store has a daughter, Trudy. She lets William do sexy things to her, so they get married. And William is trapped in an unhappy marriage with a sniveling and conniving wife and a sniveling and conniving mother. Trudy also changes personalities pretty severely once she becomes a wife, and yeah. There's also a side plot about his sister Mona, who ends up in her own awkward marriage to a gay man, but we'll talk about that later. Back to Tilly. She can sew. She starts making clothes for the ladies in town, and even though they love the clothes, they still treat her like shit, and they don't pay her. The town is obsessed with appearances, and all the women are constantly trying to outdo each other. Trudy and Mrs. Beaumont create a fancy social club as a way of putting on airs and starting to have events. Of course, this means everyone needs new fancy dresses to wear so they can show off, and they're still treating Tilly like shit. 
So lots of intertown drama, but we end up with Tilly making everyone dresses and then getting barred from going to the ball and Teddy finally getting the whole story for her. See when she was 10, a boy at school who happens to be councilman rapist's son sexually assaulted her and then tried to hurt her and she moved out of the way. And so he ran his stupid ass into a wall and broke his own stupid neck. Everyone was scandalized. And of course, everyone blamed her and she was sent away. Oh, and another twist. That boy was her half-brother because Councilman Rapist had knocked up Molly years ago and then followed her to this town in order to make her life a living hell. Councilman Rapist, he does suck, but don't worry, he'll get his. But hold on. First, Teddy tells her that he loves her anyway. Who needs this stupid town? They make love and then he, in an act of stupid male bravado, decides to jump into a silo of grain, but it's not full of grain, it's full of sorghum, and he fucking dies. Holy shit. Tilly is now an extra level pariah. She's killed the town's best footballer and hero. Everyone is pissed at her, except for Sergeant Fraud, but no one listens to him. Teddy's family leaves town. The town ladies hire a new dressmaker to come to town and she kind of sucks at her job. There's no substitute for Tilly, who's making clothes for the neighboring town ladies as a mild F you to her town. At least these ladies pay her. Tilly and her mother have a good talk and eventually a good cry together. And then her mom has a stroke and dies for reals. Oh, the town doesn't really care. They're all up in a tizzy because they're competing with that next town over for some sort of variety show. It's coming up and they've realized that the new dressmaker is lousy. So they boot her and they beg Tilly to sew for them. She agrees, but she wants her old bills paid and to be paid up front for the new costumes. 17th century Baroque for the 16th century Macbeth for some reason. Proof that this town ladies are rather dim. They agree to pay her. Why not give her the money that the postmistress has on hand? Sure, that money was supposed to go pay for insurance, but costumes and showing up the other town is way more important. So Tilly sews and sews and everyone is very excited. Oh, but wait, quick flashback for Tilly and the baby that she had with her husband in those years where she was away i'll let you guess what happened to the baby yeah it died randomly and then her husband left her for fuck's sake okay the play is coming up and tilly has decided to get revenge although maybe it is the fates that is getting revenge maybe the fates are helping her out because first the town chemist a total asshole who used to beat his wife before he got all like you know old and can't do that anymore and was also a total dick to tilly when she was a kid yeah well he stumbles into a creek and drowns okay sure he was awful he'd been a wife beater no tears well, but then the town snoop and bitter old hag is spying on Tilly and Tilly in a drunken stupor throws the record player off of her own porch and it beams this lady in the head. She almost dies, but doesn't. But she does go blind and she has major brain damage. And so she gets shipped off to a sanitarium. But OK, it couldn't have happened to a worse lady. But then, oh, my God, then Tilly visits Marigold, who is the wife of Councilman Rapist, and he tells her everything. And this lady, this is so good, this lady confronts her husband cuts his freaking Achilles tendon so he can't get away, locks him in a room so he will bleed to death, and then commits suicide. Holy fuck. La la la, time for the play. Everyone gets into their insanely big and heavy costumes, and off they go a few towns away to perform, and the rest of the town goes to watch. And Tilly lights the town on fire and gets on a train. And yeah, when they get back from being pretty much laughed off the stage because holy smokes, do they not know Macbeth and they were doing it really wrong, they find the entire town pretty much uh, ruined. And oh no, there's no insurance money. The only place left standing is Mrs. Beaumont's house. Won't she be thrilled when they all show up? Also, the book uses the word scrotum far too many times. The end. So I read this book <laughs> and I was like, 
I think Jennifer doesn't like me. I think this is her way of saying she wants to quit the podcast. That's what I think. Ahem, the Dressmaker, 2015 Australian revenge comedy drama film written and co-directed by Jocelyn Morehouse, based on the novel of the same name, starring Kate Winslet as the femme fatale in the title role as the dressmaker. And here is my recap. It's 1926 in the fictitious Australian outback town of Dungator. Schoolgirl Myrtle Dunnage is blamed for the death of her classmate Stuart Pettyman and exiled from the town by the local police sergeant, Sergeant Ferrat. But it's 25 years later. It's 1951. Myrtle, now an accomplished dressmaker going by the name of Tilly, returns to Dungator. Unable to remember the events of Stuart's death, Tilly asks her mentally ill mother, Molly, but Molly remembers nothing about the incident. In fact, Molly doesn't even recognize Tilly as her daughter for a while either. But eventually, with some love and food and care, Molly recovers enough of herself to participate in life once again. So besides cleaning up her mother's house, the first thing Tilly does when she gets back to town is to shoot golf balls from her yard at the town. She has a grudge against the town, even if she can't remember quite what it was that she did or why. At the local football final game, Tilly's red couture outfit and her rampant sexiness distracts the Dungator players. Teddy, who is the lead footballer for the team, confronts Tilly, and she changes into a black but equally alluring outfit before the last quarter. When the team swap ends of the field, the team from nearby Winnerp is distracted by Tilly's dress, and Dungator wins. Tilly offers to make a dress for Gertrude Pratt for the upcoming footballer's dance in exchange for information. We get a bit of the story. Stuart, that kid, well, he was a bully. And on that fateful day, he was chasing Tilly and she hid. And then Gertrude told him where to find her. Gertrude admits this to Tilly, who doesn't exactly forgive her, but does go ahead and make her a stunning dress. There's a bit of compassion because if it wasn't Tilly, Stuart would have been bullying Gertrude. At the dance, Gertrude's dress is amazing, as is her hair. And apparently Tilly can cure her of whatever ailment had caused her to need glasses because she never wears them again. Whatever, Gert is now beautiful and poised. So she captures the attentions of William and they later become engaged, impressed the town's women's commission extravagant dresses from Tilly. Meanwhile, Teddy embarks on his steadfast pursuit of a romantic relationship with her, which she resists for a while, but eventually gives in because he is fucking hot. Teddy, by the way, is from that poor family, like I mentioned. He has a brother who's mentally challenged. This is Barney. Barney was very excited to Tilly back in town. Tilly, you moved, he exclaims. He is very, very friendly to her. He loves her. He's nice to her mom. He's just all around a great guy. That's Barney. Everyone, even Molly and Barney, are totally for this romance between Teddy and Tilly, except for maybe Tilly. Again, she resists, but, you know, he's going to wear her down in a respectful sort of hunky guy way. Tilly and Ferrat bond over their shared passion for designer clothing. Tilly confronts him about what happened, and he confesses to Tilly that he exiled her because Stuart's father, Evan, the town councilman, blackmailed him for secretly being a crossdresser. More about Councilman Evan. He has a mentally ill wife, Marigold, and he's a total ass. So Evan recruits Una to start a rival dressmaking service, which the older, more conservative ladies like. But the dress that she makes for Gertrude's wedding is horrible. To show William that his bride is actually ugly, because I guess then he won't want to marry her, maybe? William's mother tries to get William to see her in this fugly dress, and there's this mad dash by Gert to get away from him and get to Tilly, who has a lovely dress for her instead. So, now Tilly is making Gert's wedding dress, and other ladies return to her as well. They all abandon Una, and by the way, Una was having an affair with Evan. 
who cares? Bribed with a feather boa, Farat lets Tilly read the police witness statement given to him by her former school teacher, Beulah. And she becomes convinced that Beulah lied for fear Evan would blame her for Stuart's death. On the day of the wedding, Tilly confronts Beulah with the help of Teddy and Barty hitting golf balls to keep her confined. And yes, Beulah did lie because, again, she was afraid she didn't want the blame. But also, nobody else was there. Tilly was there, dead Stuart on the ground. What happened? Nobody knows. Nobody wants to know. Tilly goes to the wedding. She tells Frat that he has to do something. Obviously, Beulah lied, but he remains convinced that Tilly killed Stuart. Again, everybody in town had an alibi. She was the only one there. And then, for fun, he also reveals that Evan is Tilly's father. Tilly leaves, and Teddy follows along with Barney, who is now hysterically saying that Tilly moved over and over and over again. Smart cookie Teddy takes Tilly to the schoolhouse and has her relive that fateful day to determine what exactly happened. Stuart had, apparently, subdued Tilly against a wall, threatened to murder her mother if she moved. He charged head down at her, but she moved aside and Stuart broke his own neck. Barney witnessed this from the hound silo, but he was afraid people would think he was lying or that he would be sent away because remember, he's mentally slow and this is the 1920s. Tilly is relieved and maybe there is no curse. So Tilly and Teddy go to his caravan and they make sweet, sweet love. Then they sit atop the silo and then Teddy shows off by jumping inside, but asphyxiates as he sinks into the sour gum. Molly reveals that Evan knew about Tilly and when Stuart died, he had Tilly sent away in order to hurt Molly. Having her daughter taken from her is what broke Molly's mind. She is healing quite well now and even bonding with Tilly over sewing, etc. She encourages Tilly to use her dressmaking talents against the townspeople. She puts a plan to motion, sending a letter to another town offering Tilly's services as a costume maker for an upcoming town rivalry event. She also makes more of Tilly's THC-infused cakes for old lady Irma, who's suffering from like arthritis or something, and her asshole husband won't help her because he's all about blaming women for sin, even though that he's the lecher. It's okay, he's going to get his in a sec. But first, Molly has a stroke and dies. While Tilly and Frat hold awake for Molly, Beulah snoops around the house. Tilly drunkenly objects to the music and throws the portable record player off the veranda, where it smashes up Beulah pretty well and nobody is sad. Beulah is helped onto a train. Uh, yep, off she goes to an asylum. So, Irma's husband, Mr. Almanac, the town chemist who also mistreated Tilly as a child because, of course, everybody did. Well, he drowns in a lake behind his house because his wife, under the influence of those hash brownies, does not try to save him. And haha. But everybody's mad about this. This is this is not a good thing. So to prevent Tilly's arrest, Sergeant Frat takes the blame. He pretends like he is the person who's been raising growing marijuana and baking them into baked goods and giving them to his friends. He is removed from the town. This is his way of making it up to her for his part in the tragedy 25 years ago. Tilly reveals Evan's philandering to his wife, Marigold. Then she confronts Evan. Again, she cuts his Achilles tendons and leaves him to bleed to death. Okay, so Tilly made the townspeople costumes for their interpretation of Macbeth, but she also made costumes for the other town as well. So the townspeople travel to Winterp to perform in the competition. Okay, they realize that because of the numerous deaths, they've left them without a full cast and that Tilly has betrayed them and created Winnup's costumes. They're all mad. Meanwhile, back in the town, Tilly sets fire to her house and a paraffin-soaked bolt of red fabric rolling it down the hill towards the town, stating that she is no longer cursed. She leaves the town by train. The townspeople return to Dungator and find it all burnt to hell. Then Tilly choo-choos away with her sewing kit and I hope she knows how to get a fake ID. The end.
So after I watched this movie, I thought, okay, Jennifer doesn't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I told you to watch the film first and, you know, find if you wanted to read the book, which I had noted was not good. The movie was off the rails. Okay, I didn't remember that. All I remember... I, I think because I always read the book first, always, even if I've read it in the past, even if I've already seen the movie, when we prepare for this, because books come first. So I feel like in order to really discuss an adaptation, you have to see the first thing and then you see how it was adapted. So it just makes logical sense in my brain. And you, I remember saying that like the movie went off the rails. It was crazy. It was, it was bizarre and weird and blah, blah, blah. And so I really expected something weirder than that. This isn't weird. This is quirky. I would, I, yeah, this wasn't like bizarre to me. It was. If you read the book first, you're expecting a lot of what's going on. As somebody who had no idea what was going on, I was watching it and just, what the hell is going on with this plot? It, what? Yeah. So that was my reaction. See, I didn't, I mean, there's like the basic plot points. And I read a couple of reviews that were like, this movie couldn't decide what genre it was. And it, it kept switching tones and. I don't know. Maybe that's just how my brain works. It didn't seem overly complex and it didn't seem confusing and it didn't seem like it was tonally shifting or at all. It, it seemed like it was quirky and it was, uh, it's the book is described as Gothic. And I will say, I don't think that the book is actually Gothic. It's not how I would define it at all. And the movie is like a melodrama. So things are a little bit more exaggerated because of that, because of it's kind of a melodrama but it didn't seem overly bizarre. I think, and one review I read made a really good point that I think works really well. I think this movie was maybe 10 to 15 years too late because in the nineties, we had a lot of weird quirky Australian stuff. We had like Priscilla queen of the desert and Muriel's wedding. And I think that this movie really would have fit into that timescape, but maybe in the, in the 2017 or whenever this movie came out, it was, uh, it wasn't quite what people were looking for yeah but anyways it does have some interesting themes so do you want to talk about the themes all right we'll go to the themes okay i've talked a lot do you want to talk do you want to start so the writer of this book specifically was going after vices so in an interview ham said the three things i find most annoying with humans suspicion malice and prejudice but it's rife among all of us yeah those are three bad things but that's kind of what she engages in in the entire novel. She is engaging in this really spiteful behavior and making fun of people that she creates. Yes. I find that just kind of ironic and fun. I think that what she did, though, is she made cartoon cardboard cutouts of quote-unquote bad guys so that you could knock them down and not actually feel bad about it. Everybody was so one-dimensional that it was like, okay, this person is a bad guy. This person's a bad guy. This person cheats. This person steals. This person does this. The postmistress opens everybody's mail. You know, this person over here lied. Everybody's bad. You know what was missing from this town? A church. Hmm. And I, I, I bumped on that because, okay, we have a post office box. We got the chemist. We've got the school teacher. We've got the, the bar. You know, we've got the footballers. We've got the farmers. We've got the white trash. We've got the guy who takes out the garbage. We've got the police, you know, guy. We've got all of this very quintessential small town things. But in every other small town novel and movie that I can think of where there's like frustration about, you know, the evils like, hidden behind and the hypocrisy of small towns, which to be fair is like a whole subgenre of itself, right? Small town, whatever. 
there's always a pastor, right? There's always some church, whether like they are the pinnacle of the hypocrisy. I'm looking at you, shock a lot, or they're the, you know, just the bastion of good. They're, there's, they're there, you know, there's some kind of moral person who's supposed to be moral. And in this, we don't have anybody who's supposed to be moral except for maybe the sergeant. But then Ham goes to the effort to make him he's he's one of the few characters who's actually fleshed out a little bit but i found her depiction of him in the book kind of problematic so i i don't know what, what i mean because even him like everybody had their sin right everybody had a sin and his sin was that he wore women's clothing in the privacy of his own home which okay it's not a sin so like that was yeah that was my thing well that's not really a sin i found him to be one of the most fun characters i've seen in a long time you have this police sergeant who loves this town and he's just really into fabric and sewing i thought he was lovely yeah he well he was fleshed out i will i'll say but he was also very it was a caricature oh he's a gay man he's very prissy he's very precise he's very clean and like organized and like particular and he's got this secret and you know like this thing um the only really interesting thing about his whole character for me was that he made the point that everybody had seen what hangs on his drawing lines like and he has to buy his fabric in the store and he's always like oh yes for curtains or you know for a tablecloth and there's this idea that people kind of know but they pretend that they don't know the same thing with the gal treating on her husband everybody knows even like her husband's friends who give her husband crap about football and whatever like it never gets to the point where they say but also you know your wife is stepping out on you so like there's a lot of times where the town is full of bad people doing bad things but there's like a line that even they won't cross because it's like us versus them you know you i can call my sister fat you can't blah 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 right that that mentality and so it was interesting to me that like so he he acknowledges that a, probably a fair number of them know what's happening in his private life but nobody really cares enough about it yeah i don't know like i just yeah there is a complicitness that they all know each other's secrets but still like they kind of allow them their own mischief, I suppose. Yeah. And, and I think what it is, is because I'm not going to tell your secret because I don't want you to tell mine. So they're all like interbred in it, you know, like it's very interlocked, all of the secrets and oh. lies and this and that. And I think that that paints the, the small town in an interesting way. But because there's nothing really secret about it, though, they've lived with this for years. Well, and so but there's like the secret versus there's like known versus uh, publicly known because everybody knows that what's her name, Ruth, whatever, is sleeping with that guy, right? And I, I don't even know their names because they're just side characters. So I'm not even going to look it up. But like, there's a gal, she's the sings with the band. She's not, she's sleeping with some guy who's not her husband. Everybody knows, even probably her husband, right? But nobody talks about it because if you acknowledge the thing, then you have to deal with it. And that is, that is how secrets work, but that's also how, you know, societies and like the in-group and the out-group, they feed on that kind of like the suspicion, but also, you know, we're not going to acknowledge it. It's just, it's just what we know. So this, this, this idea of the small town being like that, again, it's not a new idea. It's just, again, this particular town, there's absolutely no one except for Tilly who isn't part of that. And <laughs> And Tilly is not written very well. 
I she's supposed to be the character that we sympathize with the most and that we understand and whatever, but we don't get a lot of interior stuff of Tilly. We get pages and pages and chapters of the interior thoughts of all of these side characters. And there is like 40 characters in this book. And we've got so much about everybody and how everybody's related to everybody and what everybody does for a living and what they do and how they do it and blah, blah, blah. And then- Very incestuous. Exactly. And then Tilly is just like, she responds to things and we have her dialogue and then she shuts the door and then she does this. And we're not always in her brain as much and it's it's a very strange disconnect and then when we do get in her brain we get weird ass flashbacks because apparently rosalie hamp has decided that in order to give a character depth they have to be tragic and so it's not enough that she was bullied she was also sexually assaulted it's not enough that she was bullied and sexually assaulted her life was in danger oh it's not enough that she was bullied sexually assaulted and her life was in danger but her mother was threatened well it's not enough that all of that but also her mother had had her out of wedlock oh but that's not enough no her mother had been followed here by the guy who impregnated her and it was currently making her life a living hell and like you know oh and then she had this husband and then she had a baby who died what the f- I mean, and then Teddy has to die and then her mother has to die and it was just like oh my god okay so Teddy's death to me was one of those moments where I was like what the fuck with this film book I only want to talk about the book right now okay so even with the book um it was like what the fuck now the reason why this caught me is I did see the film first and in the movie there's really almost no explanation for why he dies in the book they explain oh well it was supposed to be wheat that you can sit on but no it's changed out for the sorghum and he just fell in they totally explain that in the movie they showed the whole scene early on of him going down and in the movie it they they did the two scenes with the silo there were three scenes with the silo that were important and they informed teddy's character and they informed how the town saw teddy as the outsider they were paying him those boys were give, like bribing him with money to do something stupid and dangerous of going down into the grain and hanging out with the mice because he's so desperate for money it's clearly like this privileged white boy oh bum fighting kind of mentality right you're poor you'll do anything for money so we're going to make you into a clown we like you on the football field but we still think that we're better than you in all other ways and then they talked about the fact that it was sour gum and his mom knew what had happened and that's why he, that was fine in the that was fine the book had similar things but they didn't cl- show it as well which is my main thing with this book this book is way too long with way too many details about way too many things but not enough details about the things that actually mattered and it, it really it bothered me i disliked this book well, in the film it was it was just like very briefly alluded to basically he just kind of disappears and that's when it turns into okay this is a love story what the fuck you just killed it's kind of like when you kill a main character because if you're making sort of this love story that would be the main character yes no i mean in both in both of them it was a shocking yeah from that perspective like the the plot was just really bizarre to me for that reason alone. And I think, again, that's this author being like, well, I have to motivate Tilly, so I'm going to make more crappy things happen to her. And I know that you're familiar with the term fridge, right? The fridging somebody. Oh, women in refrigerators? Yeah, basically. So, like, you take this woman character, what you basically, it's about a male character. And in order to motivate his quest or his growth or his transformation into the hero or whatever, we fridge his wife. We lock his wife into a refrigerator and she dies. Or we rape his wife or his sister or we kill his wife. You know what I mean? Like, we basically. Yeah. So, the character really has no reason to exist other than to motivate this person. Right. So, her rape is 
only tragic because it reflects on him, not because a woman getting raped is tragic. And this book flips that around and we have Teddy who's there, <laughs> who dies just so Tilly can have yet another sad thing happen to her <laughs> and the town can have another reason to hate her. And it is really annoying. <laughs> and I, I knew her mom was going to die because anytime you've got a character coming home to take care of a sick relative or whatever, and the character's going to need catharsis, you're like, yeah, mom's not long for this world. Hopefully they can have a moment before mom dies. And they did. It was great. But then mom dies, but, but also the boyfriend dies. And so it's, and then we have flashbacks of the baby that died. And I'm sorry, pulling the dead baby card out two thirds of the way through the book is just bad writing and emotionally manipulative for no real reason and it bugged the crap out of me okay i did warn that it was a bad novel also this book uses the word scrotum and i think i said i made a meme just for you jennifer i'm going to share my screen with you so that you can see this exciting meme that deals with scrotums yes see it okay that's definitely funny since that was a meme that was on my facebook yes, page yes you put a meme up on your facebook page about like people bugging you while you're trying to read and i was like no she's got the wrong caption for this meme and i changed it and yes pages and popcorn listeners i am going to put this meme up on our uh <laughs> on our on our facebook for sure yeah but, so link the original because that's a great one and then link that one definitely so, that, so you can see yeah. what i'm talking about okay <laughs> too many scrotums steaming scrotums like tomatoes i just what do you have against scrotums Julia? you know what people some people don't like the word moist i don't think i like the word scrotum and she used it she used it six times this book is not long enough for six usages of the word scrotum and it's all well it depends on the kind of books you read this book did not need them it, it just didn't. We also had a lot of breasts and nipples and I mean it was like trying to be titillating <laughs> see what I did there but not in a very good way. I just, it, it was a failure almost of imagination. It was very. I wonder if we could put scrotum up there with succulent and savory as hated words. <laughs> I, those ones don't bother me quite as much. This one definitely scrotum is a, and it's a very specific part of what, of the package. And it just, I don't, <sighs> okay, whatever. A, a, an unintentional theme. I think that's going on is where you have this rather sort of plain character you know, there's a plain character, she gets dressed up, like all of a sudden her skin is magically flawless, but it's that you can be attractive and sometimes it just has to be how it's presented. Like everyone has an attractive, like you just need the right dress. You need to, No, not, I'm not saying like the right dress, but if you get a dress that fits your body a little bit better and shows off certain things. Yeah, but this was, the, this is a thing. This is, this is movie magic. This is a perfect dress will also teach you how to do your hair, do your makeup and cure your astigmatism or whatever it was that you needed for your glasses for and teach you how to walk and talk and like carry yourself in a room. That is called being a stylist. So Tilly wasn't just dressmaking, she was styling these women, which is fair if you could have acknowledged that. But it would have been so much more impactful and interesting if A, a Gertrude, because that's who we're specifically talking about, already had the ability to carry herself. She was just, didn't have the self-esteem because of the clothes and the clothes like helped her find that instead of her entire essence being changed by, by what Tilly did. Or if these ladies didn't actually change their inside, they just changed their outside. And somehow the couture didn't work quite so well because part of what makes couture work is the having the gravitas to carry it off. I'm sorry, Kate Winslet in that red outfit smoking the cigarette with the perfect sunglasses and the lipstick is way better 
if I put on a, even a dress that fit me perfectly, that red thing, and I didn't bother to brush my hair and I was still picking my teeth, you know, and, and putting on my flip-flops to sit and have a beer while watching a football game, it's not going to have the thing. Do you know what I mean? So that was just overly simplistic, but, and I, what I thought was interesting was in the book, the reason why she's making these dresses when they come to her, because they come to her in the book and in the movie, she goes to Gert and she's like, I can make you a beautiful, I can make you a dress, blah, blah, blah. And in the book, it was, it was different than that. It was, they were coming to her. And I just thought that was. And, and the thing is, it seems like Ham is incredibly unaware because she's making all these points about clothing and how clothing it's, is it a mask for the ugliness that you're carrying? Is it something that makes you, you know, show yourself off to the best advantage that you have? Because even like, okay, so Gertrude, when she has a baby, like even then she's making fun of her body in really mean ways. Mm-hmm. Like she's got hairy legs and here's this baby coming out and everyone's horrified by it. So birthing is ugly in that sense. But then when Tilly has birthing, it's it's tragic. So it was the unawareness of Ham and she doesn't seem to understand the metaphor that she's trying to use. I hardcore agree. And I think that one of the problems is that it's all very, very surface. It's like, we can dress it up. You dress this book up in fancy clothes, but that doesn't save the plot from being garbage, which it is. And the characters are being one dimensional, which they are. And they're, they're, they're so one dimensional that she, she does that, that Dickens thing of giving them all names that, inform their personality or their personal sins i think if you do that occasionally it's fine but like any shtick if every single name every single name has a deeper meaning or whatever then it loses its its ability to make you care because you're just being inundated and you're like that was cute like one butterfly on the wall is cute if your whole wall is butterflies then you have a butterfly problem do you know what i mean and so like and some of them weren't even subtle like mrs pickard picks at her face dude okay come on like i just it but yes i guess we should go through there's a fruit dim yes the dim. original blood is the butcher mm-hmm. horatio mm-hmm. ferret because he's got the hero and the weasel in him yes we have pratt as the you know because there's a british yeah. insult exactly and pratt falls right you know they're very myrtle's the first name with positive connotations because myrtle is a rare beautiful fragrant evergreen dunnage refers to um mats or other materials put under cargo to prevent getting wet it means something useful but also expendable the dim sisters who hold important positions in town but are dim the one who's postmistress and bank manages obviously makes that financial mistake blah blah blah, blah. petty man the councilman rapist petty man <laughs> Beulah Hardin, who's a Harden who spreads malicious gossip. I mean, just <laughs> it just it goes and goes. Marigold, her father was really rich and her husband married her for her money. He married gold. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's like it's bad. It's bad is my is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, as I was reading, it's like, how do you fix the plot? Which is never good when you're doing it while you're reading. And it would have been just a lot better if you had the allusions to a lot of these characters and just trying to populate a town, which you can't do in a book. It's just too many people and just focused on making a couple of them really stand out because mm-hmm. Ted and his brother could have been really fascinating. You know, they're these characters that have a lot of humanism in them. 
I, as I said, I loved Ferret. I thought he was be a great character. He was cute as he was. He could have been great. Yeah. Yep. You know how you fix the plot of this book? Write a different book? You make it into this movie because almost all of my problems with this book got solved in the movie, except for one. There's one pretty major problem I have, but that, that doesn't get solved. But all the other problems, too many characters, fine. Let's cut 10 of them out. Done. Still too many characters? Cool, cool, cool. Let's merge a few together. Done. Problem solved. Okay. Let's see here. What's another problem? We don't understand what Tilly's thinking because all we have are like her saying something and shutting a door. That's fine. Now we have Kate Winslet and we have her face. We understand what's going on internally because Kate Winslet tells us more than words in the freaking book tell us about what's going on inside Tilly. You want to deal with the weirdness of why she's back? Oh, I know. Give her like the specific type of amnesia where she doesn't know what happened so that we actually are invested and we want to also find out what happened and then make it into a big thing but not every single big thing that could possibly ever horribly happen to a woman big thing just a big thing that happened to a child so it's way more believable and thus more sympathetic when we find out what happened and let's say the entire town hated tilly her entire life that's not that's a little far-fetched how about have gert who traded in her own safety for tilly's you know by by saying where she was and the woman, the, the, the headmistress who lied because she was also afraid of the men. Let's have this movie really talk about institutional patriarchal systems and how we work within those systems and we find our way to have our own sense of power. Let's give Gert something better to do. Let's make William less of a defoon. Let's, I mean, everything. And then let's, let's add in a layer where there's Barney who's been trying to tell the message the whole time that Tilly moved, but nobody will listen. So let's listen to the people who society ignores. Let's care for the old woman who's sick because her heart is broken because somebody stole her child. She didn't just go mad. Let's take away all of that negative shit that this book put on these people and make it so much better. <laughs> that is how you fix this book. You make it into this movie. It doesn't hurt to have Kate Winslet come out in the black frock and like lift off the top and look like she's almost naked from the shoulders up because Kate Winslet in this film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kate Winslet is was 40 in this film. Well, I like that she's a fuller figured woman who is still just kicking it. I love the fact that she's a 40 year old lady in this film who is beautiful and like does housework in heels because that's commitment and then manages to get the Oh my God, so hunky 28 year old Liam Hemsworth. Yes. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> and it was believable. If I was Liam, I'd be all over that action too. You know what I mean? <laughs> and if I was Tilly, like, who's going to say no to Liam Hemsworth? So, like, it works really well. And that, that um, tape measuring scene that they had together was lovely. Mm. And Molly was a much better character in the movie. We understood why she was sad. Judy Davis does an amazing job with that character. And they did a couple really cool things that were subtle. When she first shows up and she doesn't recognize Tilly and she's scared, you're like, okay, I'd be scared too, right? You don't. And then as she remembers who Tilly is and she's getting more of her memories back, now you can say this is like movie magic again of like, you're not really mentally ill. You just need to be fed and you know someone to love you because you know medicines are not a thing apparently but fine whatever well this is when it's more fable than looking at this as a realistic plot well and that's the thing okay so the last episode for this podcast was a magical realism 
book like Water for Chocolate. When you have magical realism, you expect people to like burst into flame and flowers to float and people, you know, magical things to happen, right? This, I feel like if the author had made this a magical realism book, it might've worked better. But what it is, is it's a melodrama. So like, there are things that you just kind of wave away. Gertrude's transformation, um, Molly's curing, you know, like getting better. All of that stuff, you can kind of just wave away because it's almost fairy tale, but it's just, it's melodrama. Everything's a little bit heightened and everything's just, it's just heightened, you know, the mm-hmm. the old guy falling into the, <laughs> into the pond and dying, you know, that's, that's the melodrama of it. And I, I just think, I thought that the movie did such a good job of fixing those plot holes and fixing the things that were bad in the book. Of course, like I said, there is one thing that they both did. And I, I, I alluded to it in my recap, but she's there to get revenge. Maybe. Okay. In the book, she's there because she can't, she, she needs to check on Molly. And then she stays because then she's kind of invested in Molly and then she stays. Well, yeah, and... later on you find out she was kind of black sheeped, you know, because right. of her child. Uh, right. So that's why that's why Tilly, Tilly shows up in the book because of her mother. And then she stays. And then she decides at one point to get revenge on the town, kind of. And then she kind of does with the costumes. But... I kept waiting for the grand plan, like the super smart, haha, I've tricked you all, or I've done this thing to you. And, and what she did was she distracted them and got them all out of town and then burnt down their town. Okay. So now we're in the movie. Her reason for coming is a little bit different. She wants to know what happened to her. You know, she's like on this journey of self-discovery and she wants to, you know, reconnect with her mother and like, you know, solve this mystery and blah, 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 blah. So that's all happening. And now she's fallen in love and whatever. And she's decided to get revenge, right? And her mother's the one who says, get revenge on these people. And again, her revenge is making them the costumes that they want, making costumes for the other town, and then getting, you know, waiting until they all leave and then burning down their town. Now, Tilly did not set up this thing that they were all going to go to, to get them out of town. It was just very convenient. Oh, look, they're all going out of town. I can burn the town down. Tilly didn't make the postmistress not mail off the insurance. Like that postmistress lady had already stolen that money. That Tilly, and Tilly had no way of knowing that. Okay. And yeah, if she had been behind that, if it's, well, you know, if you have this money, I could make you the costumes. And if you could see the wheels working, that would have been better. And then the, the ending with the cloth going down, it's very dramatic and very pretty, but it doesn't make sense in, a, in the narrative format. Because I had the same thing as you is, well, I hope she's leaving the country or can, you know, it's 1950s, maybe she can get away by leaving France and they don't have the same technology and nobody's going to track her. But like you were the last person in the town, right? Yeah. Like everybody know. And in the book, it's even clearer because in the book, Sergeant Fraught has not gone off to jail or whatever. He's there. And this is actually sad. When when his like superiors show up to figure out what all, what all this death in the town, death that Tilly's not responsible for, right? She didn't make the guy fall in the pond. She didn't, you know, no okay fine whatever she and she accidentally beamed that lady in the head it wasn't on purpose so i don't think that counts as her revenge that just is like fluky things that happen whatever anyway so the inspector guy shows up and he's like there's been a lot of deaths i better you know show up 
okay. So then he's there and Farad's like, oh my God, he can't find all of my cross-dressing, you know, women's clothing. So he hides all of this stuff at Tilly's house. And when Tilly burns everything down, she burns all his shit too. And he yeah. knows it. And so he's just there. My frocks. Like, my frocks, yes. But he totally knows who set the whole town on fire. It's not at all subtle. Like, how is there not? And you know why? There's a sequel, which I'm not going to read, but apparently, I don't know if there's ever going to be repercussions for the fact that she did massive property damage. And we've talked before about characters who react versus act, and Tilly just reacts. Like, that's all she, it didn't feel like she was putting a plan into motion. It just felt like she was like, oh, yeah. And chaos happens, and luckily, comeuppance happens, but that's nothing that she did. Yeah, and when you have that starting line of "I'm back, bastards," it's a great opening for the movie. Yeah, but it doesn't follow through. So to me, that for opening line was less about "I'm here to get revenge" because I don't think she was there to get revenge. She was just like, "You're all a bunch of bastards who don't like me, but whatever, I'm here. I physically exist." Is how I saw that line. Whereas in the you know, it it seemed it wasn't about revenge this movie is billed as a revenge movie but i don't feel like the revenge really happened until the very end and then it was like accidental revenge like oh that's convenient i guess i'll let that happen it's not really revenge and again it's like the fates it wasn't even tilly doing it so that is my main quibble with both book and movie is is this revenge not revenge thing but if you take the story for what it is then the story, the plot in the movie far exceeds plot of the book. And the movie is beautifully shot and amazingly acted. I would say, like, there are a couple moments where there was that. So when um, Molly and... Barney? Barney. Barney and Molly, the the bad people of the town. Because he's gone Barney, get it? (laughs) Yeah. Ah, So when Molly and Barty are lobbing golf balls at the school while Tilly is interrogating the school teacher, that's a fairly well-planned thing of she can't leave because it's dangerous out. She can't Mm -hmm. tell where the balls are coming from. (laughs) That was the kind of fun stuff that was like, okay, there's some plot going on there. She's doing a thing. This is pretty cool. She's getting some combuppets. And that's one of the few times when she's really acting instead of reacting. Yeah. And then even when she goes to talk to Marigold, I mean, what is exactly is it that she does? Marigold, she can tell Marigold that your husband is my father and everybody knows that he cheats on you. Here's the thing. Marigold knows that Tilly is in some way responsible for her son's death. So I just, I don't see, and we don't see that conversation in either of the book or the movie. And it's like, you're the most unreliable narrator <laughs> to come to. And why would Marigold believe you? You know, like, unless she's, she's saying something that, and this really circles back to the stuff I was saying before about how everybody knows, but you just don't acknowledge it. Cause once you, it's said out loud and acknowledged, then you actually have to deal with it. So that's the only thing you can say. Maybe Marigold knew, but she just didn't want to know. But now it's like too clear to ignore or whatever. So in the book, Marigold cuts his Achilles tendons and he bleeds out, which is horrible and graphic, but you know, kind of deserved it and then she takes a bunch of her tonic to attempt suicide okay i mean she was mentally ill and she was sad and it's it's sad her her suicide is sad because we don't want marigold to die you know you want her to to find someone who actually loves her and will help her through she needs to go date adrian monk is what needs to happen and then they can live happily together in a very clean home but no in the movie 
she leaves him to die and then we don't see her go commit suicide or attempt suicide they just reference later that she's not around and i was like where did she where did she go did she just kill him and then leave town did she just kill him and then like hang out in her house like the the ending of the movie was super rushed because we didn't have as much invested in this play which oh my god can we talk about the play like for some reason they're performing macbeth and mona's up on stage masturbating or something i mean i was very confused about this play situation and they seem to make a big deal about they wanted to wear 17th century baroque costumes and tilly's just like ha 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 you stupid cows this play was written in the 16th you know whatever um i'm sorry a lot of times they put actor they redo the plays macbeth hamlet all of shakespeare in different time periods so that's that's not even that big of a deal I don't, I really don't understand this thing with the play. Maybe it's just because I'm not a Shakespeare file person, but like, did you get it in either the book or the movie? What the, what the thing was with this play? No. Yeah. (laughs) It it was just a thing that they did and there's just really bad at it. So it was characters who you don't like being bad at a thing that they are trying not to be bad at. And it was like a weird classes thing. Like they're so stupid. They don't even understand, you know, like Macbeth and I'm sorry Macbeth is like a hard play to do I mean it's Shakespeare it's a lot of memorization if they actually memorize that whole thing like that's not common language that's okay so then they go to perform this and the other towns were doing musicals right but just because you're doing a drama and they're doing musical doesn't inherently make yours bad so then it was like they didn't even get to do their second act because the judges were like no and everybody had left and the only thing that it really said about their performance like i said was that mona was up on the stage master and you're like did they not get macbeth see and if tilly had like slipped them a version of macbeth that's called macbeth but that was actually like some other random play that wasn't macbeth but these people were like too quote-unquote stupid to know what actual macbeth was and so they were performing the wrong play or like something somebody in town had just made up you know what i mean you could almost Mm -hmm. see that working i was very confused and also we had a lot of mona masturbating mona moaning away by herself because again with the names and like she accidentally marries this uh you know accident this marriage that she ends up with another gay guy i just oh my god no she ends up with leslie who's the so many characters right who was like they met him in town he was like working at the hotel but then like said that he was an equestrian horse trainer and so they brought him back and you're like kind of thinking he's a con artist there's like nothing going on with that it's really bizarre a con artist and then like her slip was showing so she changed and then her dress was inside out so then they were like oh now you got to get me i dude dude this dude (laughs) oh my god it's amazing you know what when people say the book is always better than the movie i often say no and the reason that i can say no is because of things like a simple favor uh throwback to our second episode of this podcast but now i can also say the dressmaker (laughs) i'm sorry i know i'm like really at the end here did you have anything else you wanted to say because i feel like i've wrapped up like six times i don't think i don't think anyone's surprised (laughs) there's no more mystery (laughs) in what i feel Was this book and movie worth your time, Jennifer? <laughs> I would say I enjoyed the movie just because for me, it was kind of an awful, well, what the hell is 
the point? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? What are you doing with this plot? And so that had me interested. Um, I thought Kate Winslet did a fantastic job, but that's why I also warned you. Kayla, you know, watch this movie. See if you want to do it. I've heard the book's terrible. So I think we're both on agreement of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the movie, yes, it's definitely worth at least one watch. It's got some great scenes. You, you've got two very, very attractive actor actresses that make their um, attributes on display. Yes. In pleasing ways. Yes. Uh, it's a fun little story when it's a little story and not like a full book that you're reading. Agree. The book is totally not worth your time. The movie is totally worth your time. I absolutely love Tilly's mom, Molly, at the movie theater yelling at the movie screen. He's going to kiss her. She's trying to kiss him. Run! You know, and like all of this stuff. She was a delight. She totally stole stole the show. And that was a, just not even the same character as the one in the book at all. I, I found the movie engaging and enjoyable. And I, you know, sometimes less is more. Um, a lot of times less is more. And so by getting rid of the multiple layers of tragedy, the multiple extraneous characters who didn't do anything, I felt like we were able to get like a much more nuanced story. The revenge thing at the end still kind of, you know, is a little like, okay, that's Okay. And I will never, ever, ever forgive a movie for taking a girl's glasses off and brushing her hair. And then suddenly she's beautiful. Cause that's just straight up bullshit, but fine. The dress was indeed beautiful. And one of the most fun parts of this movie was all the women in their couture, especially Gert with her arm way up in the air, like striking poses, you know, and just like the weird juxtaposition of this high couture as they're just walking around doing laundry and running their daily lives and I just I love that that's like kind of a whimsical quirkiness that that I that I dig so. like in Tu Wong Fu it's you know thing that you you don't have to sort of settle it in what is considered you know sort of traditional or what's just functional sometimes you can have fun sometimes you can you know, put on some makeup to do housework just because you want to have a makeup day. I mean, we are in 2021 now, but <laughs> with COVID, there are a lot of people dressing up in full-on Renaissance clothes to go get their mail or, you know, wearing their cosplay outfits to walk the dog because people are desperate for something <laughs> that'll differentiate today from yesterday. So I'm here for it. In fact, listeners, if you are one of those people who dress up um, in just more um, than leggings and sweaters to do da daily things i would love to see before i want to see somebody you know just kind of wandering around their house in a wedding dress like miss haversham <laughs> or the girls on friends sitting there on the couch eating popcorn and drinking wine <laughs> in a wedding dress <laughs> yes yeah i mean i just i i would love to see those pictures that would make me happy i can't fit in any of my cool clothes anymore i've gained too much quarantine weight if you have a picture of yourself you know, wearing, you know, 17th century Pope regalia with a high crown. Yes, please. If you have cosplayed Moira Rose in the last year, we want to see it. <laughs> Go ahead and send us those pics. You can send them to uh, pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com. You can send them to us on Facebook. You could do it on Twitter, but I probably won't check. Um, you know, tag us in your Instagram post where you've already posted those things. I would love to see. That would be awesome. And maybe, maybe when we do our uh, monthly pop in event later this month maybe i'll actually put on something oh my god i actually have i think like a 1950s inspired dress it's not couture okay i'm not like that but it but it is like kind of a little doris day-esque okay let's make this a thing we'll dress up <laughs> we, i'll even put on like my fancy stuff we'll put on some fancy stuff oh it'll be fun 
<laughs> okay. That I think is the end of this episode. <laughs> I don't think there's anything left to say. I complained somewhere. I was like, rah, rah, rah. And then there's no repercussions. And someone's like, but that's why you have to read the sequel. And I was like, no, <laughs> like, life is short. I'm going blind. Do you think I have time to read bad books? I don't. <laughs> so the dressmaker's secret has an even lower rating on Goodreads. Shocking. No one. And it's almost 400 pages. Good God.